I asked Taylor, who's running the sound, if she just keep pushing the volume up as my voice disappears the next 30 minutes. When you realize your life, at least the next 30 minutes, is in the hands of your daughter-in-law, it's a scary thing. Um, but she's going to keep it as hot as she can. And um, I'm praying you'll hear the Lord's voice today, not mine anyway. Right? So if you have your Bibles, would you turn to Luke chapter 10? <clears throat> Our nation has set aside this week. The fourth Sunday, I mean the fourth, thir- the fourth Thursday of um, November each year for Thanksgiving. In fact, Abraham Lincoln called it a day of thanks and praise. But I, I want to remind you this morning that we as believers don't need the government to tell us to be thankful people. We don't need them to set aside a day for us. First Thessalonians chapter 5 tells believers to rejoice always and pray constantly and give thanks in all circumstances. We are to give thanks in all circumstances. So if it's the fourth Thursday in November, we give thanks. But if it's the second Saturday in February, we give thanks. If it's the first Wednesday in October, we give thanks. If it's summer, winter, rainy, sunshine, It doesn't matter. We give thanks in all circumstances. So I want to take us to a passage today that I hope will inform not only our giving thanks this week, and I do hope on Thursday you set aside some time to truly give thanks. I'm not for sure what people who don't follow God, I'm not sure who they give thanks to. Maybe they thank themselves. But we as a people know we have so much to be grateful for. And so I I want Luke chapter 10 to inform our thanksgiving this Thursday, but also every day of the year. When I think about blocking out time to give thanks to the Lord, I can't help but remember years ago, I was listening to a little kid pray. I don't know if you've ever done that at church or in your home. But he was about four years old, and he was asked to, to pray and give thanks. Have you ever been around somebody that's about four, when they start thanking God for things, you might as well get comfortable. <clears throat> because they're going to, th- everybody he could think of. I mean, I kept really opening my eyes and looking, and it was very genuine, but his head's bowed, and he's thanking God for, I mean, if he had known your name at the time, he would have thanked God for you. And I think he's about to wrap up, and then he starts with animals. And he said, I thank God for dogs. I think he's about to finish. And then he starts with his toys. God, I thank God for, I thank you for my toys, Jesus. And I thank you. And, and then he gets to this pause, and I think he's, he's finally run out. And then his prayer turns, and he says, but God, I do not thank you for snakes. And I do not thank you for spiders. And, I, and he lists all the things he doesn't thank God for. <clears throat> Still very genuine. But by the time the prayer was over, God knew exactly where this little guy stood, pretty much about all of creation. And the rest of us did too. I've never thought about telling God what I don't thank him for. But we are supposed to be a very grateful people. In Luke chapter 10, <clears throat> we're going to take a look at a time that Jesus gave thanks. In fact, I think Luke chapter 10 is the only time in the Gospels that it records that Jesus rejoiced. He rejoiced and gave thanks. 
Jesus, in Luke chapter 10, is living out 1 Thessalonians 5. Rejoice always, give thanks in all circumstances. And he's giving thanks, and his joy has reached the surface. Now, I, I do believe Jesus was always full of joy. If joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, I think he always perfectly demonstrated joy. But if you're like me, you may tend to think more about Jesus' sorrow than you do his joy. Isaiah chapter 53 says Jesus was a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. I think about all the times in the Gospels that Jesus was sad. He did have sorrow. The Gospels record that he cried over Jerusalem because the city wouldn't repent and turn back to God. And he wept over a city. The Gospels record him at the tomb of Lazarus, crying. Jesus knew the sorrow of having his 12 best friends desert him when he needed them most. Jesus knew the sorrow of having a close friend betray him and sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus knew the sorrow of taking on the wrath of God and crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think about Jesus' sorrow. But Jesus was also a man of unbelievable joy. Jesus knew perfect, intimate, infinite, holy joy. And so does God the Father. I think it's one of the characteristics that we sometimes overlook or neglect when we think about God. If I had asked you this morning to give me a bunch of characteristics of what God's like, you would have thrown out, no doubt, some very biblical things. Holy, loving, merciful, wrathful, infinite in his knowledge. I wonder how far down the list we would have got before somebody said joyful. But the Bible does record that both the Son and the Father are full of joy, and the Spirit produces joy. Proverbs 16.11, the psalmist says, In your presence, God, is fullness of joy. In his presence, fullness of joy. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 25, about some faithful servants and one that wasn't faithful. And the two that were faithful, he says, well done, good and faithful servants. Enter into the joy of your master. Not just into his presence. Enter into the joy of your master. Well, this morning I want us to read about a time that Jesus, his heart overflowed with thanksgiving, but it also overflowed with joy. And just see if we can maybe pick up a couple of things that would inform our thanksgiving this year and every year. <clears throat> Luke chapter 10. Let me show you where we're headed, and then we'll back up and read it. Look at verse 17. The 72 returned with joy. Look down at verse 21. In that same hour, he, that's Christ, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father. So what you have in verse 17 are these 72 who had returned from a mission trip. They're full of joy. And down in verse 21, you have Christ himself beginning his prayer time with the Father, full of joy. In fact, the Greek literally says he was overflowing with joy, exceedingly joyful. And then he starts his prayer with, God, I've got some things I need to thank you for. 
So, if you were to preach all of Luke 10, it would take a series of sermons. I think it's one of the richest chapters in Luke's gospel. Not going to do that this morning. I want to point out, if I could this morning, four truths for which we should be thankful. And I'm not even going to say everything that could be said about those four. But I do want us just to hit the, the mountaintops of these four things as we head into our week of Thanksgiving. Let's go back up and <clears throat> put it in context now. Verse 1. <clears throat> After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into various towns and places where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the way. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be on this house. And if a son of peace is there, let your peace rest upon him. And if not, it will return to you. And remain in that same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what, eat, <clears throat> eat what is set before you. Heal the sick. Say to them, the kingdom of God is near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, you wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. I tell you, it, be, it will be more bearable on, the day, on that day for Sodom than it is for that town. <clears throat> then down, Jesus' response, verse 17. When the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. <clears throat> Four things I could draw your attention to, and, and I pray that God would make us grateful for these truths. First two will be rather quick. Number one, be thankful that the Lord uses ordinary people. I didn't want to just skip this one and get to what Jesus is praying. I want to remind you guys that we need to be very grateful that the Lord uses ordinary people. Verse 1 says, After this the Lord appointed 72 others. Who are these others? We have no idea. We don't even know their names, church. They're just others. We don't know anything about their lives. We don't know about their gifts. We don't know where they're buried. They're just others. We have no reason to believe they were priests or scholars 
or experts in the law or Old Testament theologians. They're just 72 others who were faithful to Christ and following Christ. Just ordinary people. Just like the 12. Fishermen, tax collectors. Guys like, I can put you in my group of 12 and I can put you in my group of 72 because I use ordinary, everyday, common, nothing special about you people. That's the only kind of people he uses. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, um, I planted and Apollos watered, but God brought the increase. And then he says, the one who plants and the one who waters, they're nothing. They're nothing. These 72 are nothing. The 12 are nothing in God's, compared to what God's like. We're just ordinary. Does Jesus need these 72? Let me ask that question. He's going to send these 72 in groups of two, 36 teams out into villages and cities ahead of him to prepare the way, and then he's going to come to those villages. Does he need them to go ahead of him? The answer is no. Jesus has already been going into villages and towns where nobody went ahead of him to preach. He, he went in first. He could do that here. He's done it before. I mean, can Jesus not preach the kingdom and preach the gospel without people going in before him? But in his infinite grace and wisdom, he, he devises a plan that includes these 72. He wants to use them. doesn't need to. The Son of God doesn't need any of us. He could do this whole mission trip on his own. But he's like, I would love to include you. I want to use you even though they're nameless, ordinary, average people of infinite worth in God's eyes. But the world probably doesn't value these 72. Do you, are you grateful for the fact that if God gives you another 10 years or another 50 years, he would love to use you all of those years, even though you're just average, ordinary, and the world at large may never know your name. We don't know these guys' names. I was thinking about this um, this week. One of our college students I meet with here at the church on Monday mornings, um, we're picking short books of the Bible and reading them together, and then we just get together and talk literally verse by verse through these books of the Bible. And um, a couple weeks ago, Carson called me. We meet at 10 o'clock. He called me at 10 o'clock, and he's like, hey, I'm going to be late. I can't find my keys. And my, mercy's not my strong suit. <clears throat> so I'm like, you're a college student for good grief. You can't keep up with your keys. And as, is meeting to talk about God's word not important enough that you had everything lined up so you could at least be here on time? He's like, Doug, give me a break. Well, he gets here at 10. I had gotten here at 9 to get some work done here at the church. When I walked in at 9, I had my laptop bag. When I opened it, no laptop. I didn't tell Carson that. So you have two guys meeting here at the church, one that can't keep track of his laptop. The other one can't keep track of his car keys. And God's like, just the kind of men I'd love to use. Ordinary, common, everyday failures. And God's like, yeah, that's, that's who I use. Jonah, Peter, Mary and Martha, 72. Just a bunch of ordinary people that when God puts his hand on them, they're no longer ordinary. 
So this Thanksgiving, would you block out some time when you think about the 72 and just say, God, thank you that you use ordinary people. Old Testament, New Testament, now. Second thing, I want you to be thankful for the Lord's honesty. I want to be... I want to be thankful for the Lord's honesty. Imagine if, if we had lived back in this time. What if, what if Rod and I had been two of the 72 God picked? Like, I would like to use you guys and you're ordinary, and, and I'll include you guys. And the Lord pairs Rod and I up. We're, we're one of the teams that he's sending out. So he gets the 72 together, and in the opening verses, he's giving them their instructions. Don't take this, and if you go into a town, do this. If they reject you, do this. And Rod and I are in the back of the 72. We're good Baptists. We're in the very back of the group of 72, and we're kind of listening, catching most of what Jesus is saying, but we're ordinary guys, so we get distracted. And I think I, think I hear Jesus say something I need to ask about. So I raised my hand and I said, Jesus, I, you said no, no knapsack. Okay, that's fine. You said no sandals. That's fine. I'm really not a sandal kind of guy. But did you say something about wolves? I, I thought I caught you saying something about wolves. And Jesus like, yeah, I did. I said, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Let me just ask you, church, is, is that any way to recruit 72 missionaries? Hey, I'm sending you out. By the way, there's a lot of wolves out there, and I don't want you to be wolfy. You're going to be like sheep, surrounded by wolves. That's really not a great halftime pep talk. Who tries to recruit 72 by telling them they're going to be sheep surrounded by wolves? Is that really the picture you want to paint? It is if you're Jesus, because you're the most honest man who's ever lived. All you do is tell the truth. Church, if you're a follower of Christ or you're thinking about following Christ, you don't ever have to worry that he's going to short sell you on something just to get you to sign up. He lays it out and tells the whole truth. Sometimes it's going to be hard being my followers. Sometimes you're going to be outnumbered. Sometimes the wolves are going to show up. I still want you to go. I still would love to pull you into my service, you 72. I would love to use you. But there's going to be rough days. There's going to be days you go into the cities and they reject you. Don't expect success every time. You're going to have to shake the dust off your feet when you leave some of these villages because they're not interested. Others of them are going to welcome you. and They'll even buy you lunch. Eat whatever they give you. Love them. Some of them are going to be wolves. <clears throat> Jesus, in a way that nobody else ever has, tells the truth 100% of the time. I think about Luke chapter 14. Some people are thinking about coming and being Jesus' disciples, and he tells them this story. If a guy's going to build a tower, doesn't he sit down first and figure out whether he's got what it takes to finish the project? Does he have what it's going to cost to build the tower? Sit down, take your time, think about it. Then he says, if you want to be my disciple, you need to do the same thing. Think about it. <clears throat> Preaching through the Sermon on the Mount with our college students on Wednesday nights. 
Early, early in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, Blessed are you when people revile you, persecute you, and say all kinds of evil lies about you on my account. Rejoice and be glad. One of his earliest sermons, and right in the introduction of the sermon, he's like, hey, there's going to be people who revile you, persecute you, and lie about you. So if, if that's not going to work for you, you may want to move on. That's part of what it's going to be in this fallen world to be my disciples. Right off the bat in the first sermon. I hope sometime on Thursday you close the door, get alone with the Lord, and say, God, I thank you that you use ordinary people. If you're ever rounding up another 72, would, would you count me in? And Lord, thank you that you never lie to me. You just tell the truth. If it's about wolves, you tell the truth. If it's about heaven, you tell the truth. If it's about hell, you tell the truth. If it's about your love, you tell the truth. If it's about mercy, you tell the truth. If it's about the cross, you tell the truth. If it's about my sin, you tell the truth. Good things he tells the truth. Hard things he tells the truth. He just, he, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's all he does is tell the truth. And I'm struck as I read this. None of the 72 apparently backed out. But they couldn't get out on this mission trip and say, this is not what Jesus said it would be. So be thankful for his honesty. Number three, I want us to look at when they return. They come back from the mission trip. We don't know for sure how long this is. But apparently they had agreed to meet back up at a designated place, a designated time. And in verse 17, they show back up. The 72 return, verse 17, with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. You know, when you've been on a trip, maybe even on vacation or a mission trip, and you get back together with people and you're telling them about your trip, there's usually that one thing you're dying to tell them, like the highlight of the trip. This apparently seems to be it for these 72. It's like it didn't take them long to get around to telling Jesus rather than, hey, we went here and ate this food, and we went here and they rejected They wanted to tell Jesus that even the demons had to do what we told them to in your name. And that would be probably a highlight of a trip. I used to not even be able to get my kids to do what I told them. <laughs> They're getting the demons to do what they tell them. And Jesus lets them know they have some misguided joy. They're putting some joy in the wrong place. This is a bit of a reprimand from Jesus. Jesus says in verse 18, I, I was watching Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy. Nothing shall hurt you but don't rejoice in all of that, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your name's written in heaven. Now, let me just say something about verse 18 and 19 real quick. <clears throat> Scholars debate verse 18 and 19. I thought about just not pausing long here because I, I, I want us to focus on Thanksgiving. But I don't want to skip it. Guys are all over the place on what verse 18 means. Jesus says, I saw Satan, I was watching when he fell like lightning from heaven. 
Why does he throw that in here when they come back from their mission trip with this great report? Without giving you all the options, let me just tell you what I think he probably means here. wouldn't argue with you if you think he means something else. There's three or four good choices. I think he's referring to the fact that he's watching what, what's happening in the spiritual realm while these guys are out there doing ministry. And people are choosing to come into the kingdom. People are choosing to get saved. They are delivering people from demonic oppression. And I think this is Jesus' way of saying, I was watching, probably as he was praying for these 72 as they were out on their mission trip, I was watching what was happening in the spiritual realm while you guys were overcoming the demons. And it looked like Satan was just falling. It looks like Satan was losing ground. I think he's talking about what he was currently seeing in their ministries. Other people think it's Jesus referring back to when Satan fell the original time, all the way back thousands and thousands of years before, before Adam and Eve, when he rebelled and fell from heaven, could be. It doesn't seem to fit the context to me. I think he's talking about what's going on. When I was on my knees praying for you guys on the spiritual side of your ministry, here's what I saw. The kingdom of darkness was getting pushed back, and the kingdom of light was advancing, and Satan was taking blows. He was falling. Then in verse 19... You guys have the authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and you have power over the enemy. I personally think that's a reference to Satan and the demonic. All the way back in the book of Genesis, Satan is called that serpent. All the way at the end of Revelation, he's referred to as the serpent again. And even some of his demonic horde are referred to as scorpions in the book of Revelation. I think Jesus is saying... The battle here against the enemy, listen, I am going to protect you guys. You have nothing to fear. Now, other people think he's talking about literal snakes and scorpions. The reason I don't think that is because we don't see any believers in the New Testament running around trying to walk on snakes and walk on scorpions. I think in this context, he's talking about their victory over the demonic, and he's saying, by the way, guys, in those battles, if you're my daughter or my son... You have nothing to fear. Nothing. Guys, if you're a Christian, do not fear Satan. He's already lost. Your Savior has won. And I think that's just a reference to him saying, listen, I was protecting you guys out there, and I always will protect you. But don't get so preoccupied with verses 18 19 that you missed the point the 72 are filled with joy because of their visible success in ministry and I probably would have been too their, their mission trip went better than they thought it would and they come back saying Jesus even the demons are subject to us and Jesus says hey listen guys do not build your joy on that. Sure, be thankful. Guys, we should be thankful for visible fruit in ministry. We are here at Trinity. We're thankful. Someone comes to Christ and we get to baptize them, we're thankful. We're thankful anytime the gospel gets out. We're thankful for growth. I'm thankful for these small groups that are meeting, discussing the Bible together each week. Thankful for our college students. But Jesus is saying, 
Do not make earthly success the basis of your joy. Even ministry success. That's where, that's where the, these guys weren't filled with joy because their bank accounts were up. They weren't filled with joy because they were popular. They were filled with joy because of their ministry success. And Jesus is like, I don't think that's a good place for you to put your joy. That's not the foundation of your joy. So number one, be thankful that the Lord uses ordinary people. Number two, be thankful for the Lord's honesty. Number three, be thankful that your name's recorded in heaven. Good days or bad days, run back to that. That's where Jesus ends, verse 20. Nevertheless, don't rejoice in that, that success, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What's he talking about, your names are written in heaven? There's several places in the New Testament that refer to that. Our names being written in heaven, our names being written in, in the Lamb's book of life in heaven. Just give you a couple of them for background. Philippians 4.3. Paul says, help these women who have labored alongside me. So listen, God uses ordinary men. God uses ordinary women. And Paul's talking about women here. Please help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Hey, help the ladies, help Clement, and help all the other believers. And here's how he describes them, whose names are written in heaven, in the book of life, Philippians 4.3. <clears throat> Comes up again in Revelation chapter 20, verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Believers' names are recorded in the book of life. If your name's not in the book of life, eternity looks awful for you. In Revelation chapter 13 and Revelation chapter 17, both of them say that believers' names were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. So what's Jesus telling these 72 to do? Do not make earthly success the basis of your joy. I would tell you, listen, don't make earthly success in your career the basis of your joy. Don't make earthly success in your hobbies the basis of your joy. But this is even going beyond that, and Jesus is saying don't make earthly success, even in ministry, the basis of your joy. Why is that? Why would Jesus say that? It's because earthly success is too up and down. It's all over the place. You get a promotion at work, you have joy. You have a terrible week at work, your joy's gone. However you minister, listen, Christian, all of us are called to minister. All of us are called to be involved in ministry. All of us are gifted. All of us have a contribution to make. However you're called to minister, Sunday school teacher, a member of our worship team, small group leader, working in our children's ministry, benevolence ministry, hospitality ministry, teaching ministry, however God's gifted you to minister. Don't make earthly success in that area the basis of your joy. Let me, let me just use an example of, I'll just say a Sunday school teacher. What if one week a Sunday school teacher at this church or any other church, on one particular Sunday, it's, it's the greatest hour of Sunday school 
he's ever had. Everybody in his class happens to be in town that week, and they're all there. And they have visitors. I mean, they literally have to go get more chairs and pull them into the Sunday school classroom. And they may even have to move out of that room to get to a bigger room. I mean, it's just one of those Sundays, everybody's there. And it's a passage that is so good, and you've, the, the teacher's prepared hard, and he teaches it accurately, wonderfully. And the people are engaged and excited, and there's great discussion. Everybody discusses. Everybody has good questions. I mean, it's, it's the greatest hour he's ever had teaching the Bible. And one of the visitors even stays when everybody leaves and says, listen, you're talking about Christ, and I'm not a Christian. Would you hang around a minute and talk to me about, about that? And you, so the Sunday school teacher is actually late getting into worship because he gets to stay for 10 more minutes and share the gospel, and the person says, thank you, I, I need to think about that, but thank you for sharing that. The very next Sunday, half of his class is out of town. I mean, they're just traveling. And it's a really hard passage. I mean, it's got like treading on snakes and scorpions lightning falling from heaven, and, and nobody wants to discuss. And it doesn't go as well. And the Sunday school teacher leaves feeling kind of discouraged. One Sunday, he bases his joy on earthly success in ministry, and the next Sunday, devastated. Like, Why am I even a teacher? And it's just seven days apart. There's too much... There's too much up and down in ministry to base it on that. I mean, it was encouraging to me this week. I was listening to one of my favorite pastors preaching a passage out of the Old Testament, and he actually said, there are some Sundays when I get done preaching, I think I should be selling cars. I'm horrible at this. And I'm like, you're one of the most gifted guys. And he's like, but there are just some of those Sundays where I just, I just think, why, why did I do that? Don't base your joy, Jesus is saying, on how amazing these last few weeks were when you're out with the other 71. I wonder if Paul ever had days like that. Paul helped plant a church in Corinth. Horrible church. Hate to say that about any church. When you read First and Second Corinthians, it's a train wreck. There's division in the church. People in the church are saying, well, I follow Paul, and somebody else saying, I follow Apollos. Like somebody saying, I follow Larry. Well, I follow Brian. They're abusing the Lord's Supper. People are coming together and getting drunk while they absorb the Lord's Supper. There's sexual immorality in that church that's so bad, Paul has to write him and say, there's immorality in your church that's worse than what lost people do. And you guys think it's funny. I mean, the church in Corinth was a disaster. If Paul based his joy on earthly success, if he looked at the church he planted in Corinth, he'd be like, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? No joy. No joy for Paul. What about John the Baptist? One time in his ministry, he's preaching to probably thousands at the riverbank, baptizing hundreds, maybe thousands. A few months later, he's in jail preaching to nobody, maybe one or two Roman guards, and baptizing nobody. If he's going to base his joy on earthly, visible success in ministry, Paul has no joy, John the Baptist has no joy. So Jesus says, no way, don't do that. Base your joy on something that doesn't change. 
like whether your name's written in heaven. Whether you've experienced God's grace and forgiveness and new life, why don't you base your joy on that? Because then if you have a day where the Sunday school class is unbelievable, you have joy because your name's written in heaven. If you have a day where it's a train wreck, you have joy because your name's written in heaven. We want the fruit. We want the success in ministry. We're grateful when God gives it to us. But I'm talking about joy. And Jesus is saying if you're going to rejoice, which, guys, is a fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, it's something God creates in us, not something success creates in us. So I, I read through Luke 10, and I'm like, God, I'm so grateful you use ordinary people because <laughs> I'm one of them. And I'm so grateful for your honesty. You tell me the truth when nobody else will. And God, I'm also very grateful that you recorded my name in heaven before the foundations of the earth. And I need to know that on my worst days. And I need to know that on my best days. My name's recorded in heaven. That means ultimately it won't matter in 100 years where else my name ended up. Who's who? I remember when I was in high school, at least when I was in high school, there was this book of who's who among American high school students. I mean, if you paid enough money, you got your name in the book. I was like, who cares where else my name is? God lovingly wrote it in the slain lamb's book. <clears throat> Number four, I want us to look at Jesus' joy and his thanksgiving for just a minute. Verse 21, the 72 come back. Jesus kind of redirects their joy. And then it says, in that same hour, that same time when he's with these guys, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said... I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. and No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Christ rejoices and thanks the Father for what? What is this prayer about? What is he giving thanks for? He says, God, I thank you that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to babes. What are these things? I'm thankful that you've hidden these things, and I'm thankful that you've revealed these things. What are these things? I think it's all the things that chapter 10 is about. The pronoun, these things, is referring back to everything Jesus has been talking about. He's talking about what the 72 went out and preached about. They preached about the kingdom. He's talking about kingdom things, eternal things, gospel things, God things. Got all these truths about the kingdom and getting into the kingdom and experiencing salvation and forgiveness. All these things about the kingdom. Thank you. Watch this that you've hidden these from the wise and understanding and revealed them to babes. Thank you for that. And thank you that you've handed, you've delegated to me all authority as your son to execute the plan. You've handed all these things to me so I, I get to make the plan happen. And God, thank you that nobody knows you 
unless they know me. Nobody knows me unless they know you and the people that I choose to reveal you to. I think Jesus is thanking the Father that salvation is not dependent on our intellect. It's it's not how smart we are. Thank you that you hid these things from the wise and clever, the brilliant. Jesus is not saying that wise people, somebody graduates with a 4.0 and um, IQs off the chart, he's not saying they can't become Christians. What he's saying is they won't become Christians because they're smart. They'll have to become Christians just like everybody else, and that is you come like a babe. You come like a baby. It's childlike faith. You don't get in because you're smart. You have to get in because you humbled yourself and admitted my, my smarts won't get me there. I can't be smart enough to figure this out. The Son has to reveal the Father to me. No matter how smart I am, I need help. These things are hidden from me unless God shows them to me. So smart people can get saved. They have to come like babes. Ordinary people can get saved. We have to come like babes. He reveals them to babes. What's he mean by babes? Little children are totally dependent. They don't have anything to run on. They don't have anything to offer. They have no track record, no accomplishments, no authority, no wealth, no influence. Totally dependent. You take a little one-month-old baby, and if you don't feed it, sorry, it's not an it, if you don't feed him or her, they're not going to eat. Totally dependent. And Christ says, listen, if you come to me admitting you're totally dependent, your resume doesn't get you in because you don't have one, you're just a baby, you, don't ha- you haven't had time to build a resume. You just come dependent. And he's like, I, re- I reveal the truth, these things, the kingdom things to those people, but people that are still thinking they'll get in on their own, they miss it, totally hidden. Verse 22, Christ says, you handed all these things over to me. He gave all authority to Jesus. He says that in the Great Commission as well. All authority has been given to me. One day Christ will judge the world. He's in charge of executing this amazing plan of salvation that's going out. So he says, no one can know who the Son is. In fact, nobody does know really who the Son is except the Father. And nobody really knows what God the Father is like except the Son and the people to whom the Son reveals Him. Listen, I do think people can know there's a God without the Son's help. You can know there's a God. Creation screams there's a God. But you can't know who He is. You can't know who He is in His nature unless the Son comes along and helps you. That's what Jesus claims. No one can know who the Father is unless the Son turns the light on and reveals Him. Listen, Christian, if... If you know the Lord, it's because God graciously revealed the Son to you and the Son graciously revealed the Father to you. You didn't get there on your own. You didn't figure it out on your own. And I didn't either. God has to help us. So let me give you the fourth one. Talk about it just for another minute and wrap up here. Be thankful God uses ordinary people. Be thankful the Lord's totally honest. Be thankful your name's written in heaven. 
and be thankful that God designed salvation so that only he gets the glory. Be thankful that God designed salvation so that only he gets the glory. That may be an odd thing for you to get on your knees Thursday, close the door, block everybody out, and spend some time thanking God for. Listen, we live in such a glory-obsessed world. Everybody wants their own glory. What if we fell so in love with God that we get on our knees and thank him that he designed a plan where none of us get any of the glory. We're just so thrilled that God gets the glory. Because God designed this plan where he's hiding it from some people. I don't know how else to read that. And he's revealing it to some people. So nobody can claim the glory for figuring it out on their own. We get on our knees and we're like, God, I so love you that I want you to get all the glory. And your plan for salvation, your redemptive plan that's unfolding, it's working so that you get all the glory. None of us in heaven are going to be bragging about how we got there. We're all just going to be so grateful that God revealed it to us and wrapped his arms around us and extended salvation to us by faith. God put together this plan where the only one who deserves the glory gets all the glory. And we should get to the place where we don't care about our own glory anymore. And we rejoice that he gets all the glory. It thrills our hearts. Jesus is thanking the Father, who he calls Lord of heaven and earth. We get to call him Father, that's because he's intimate to us. But don't ever forget the fact that he's not like us. He's Lord of heaven and earth. God, you've hidden these things, revealed these things. Verse 21, why did you do that? Verse 21 says, because it was your gracious will. You just did it because you wanted to. This is the plan you chose, God, because it's your gracious will. It's just the way you chose to do it. Let me say something here. There's no way to read these verses and not realize this is one of those passages that talks about God's sovereignty and salvation. This is about God's sovereignty and salvation. If he's hiding and revealing and choosing who he hides and who he reveals, and the only way you'll ever figure out who the Father is is if the Son chooses. He has to choose to reveal it to you. This is a passage about the sovereignty of God and salvation. That truth makes some people upset. Please notice that it makes Jesus rejoice. The very truth that makes some people bitter makes Jesus rejoice. He's like, I love that truth. I'm rejoicing exceedingly. I'm giving thanks to God for that choice. His plan to remain sovereign, even in salvation, fills Jesus with joy. And other people, they're like, well, if God's revealing and hiding and choosing, that upsets me. Like, well, you look at it very differently than Jesus. It thrills Jesus, sheer joy. You know what it fills me with? Um, we have time. I want to show you where Jesus said this exact same thing in Matthew. So turn over to Matthew. We're going to finish in Matthew. I want to show you something Jesus said at the end of this that Matthew recorded for us. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 11. You're going to hear almost the exact same, well, you're going to hear word for word, the same words of Jesus 
It's the same incident recorded. Matthew 11, verse 25. At that same time, Jesus declared, doesn't this sound familiar what he's saying? I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, that was your gracious will. And guys, this is word for word. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, so that no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And this next verse is amazing. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He finishes saying God's sovereign in salvation, and then he turns to the crowd and says, Anybody interested? I mean, anybody at all? All? Anybody, anybody want salvation? I'm throwing it wide open. Anybody want to come? The truth of God's absolute sovereignty and salvation is laid down alongside man's absolute responsibility to repent and come to faith. Both of them are taught in the Bible. Right here, Jesus is like, hey, the Son's got to help you. The Father's got to not hide it from you. By the way, anybody, anybody at all, it's open to all. I, I can't make those two mesh perfectly. The doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty and the doctrine of man's absolute responsibility to repent and come to Christ and put their faith in Him, my fallen, sin-scarred, feeble, finite mind can't, can't get there. I read some of the greatest theologians in church history, and they can't get there either. They're like, I... so you, you know what this great doctrine creates in my heart? Tension. I'm not upset over it. It just creates tension. But in the infinite mind of Christ, it does not create tension. It creates joy. He's just rejoicing over it. He's just rejoicing. I think he's saying, both in the Matthew and the Luke passage, God, I thank you that this amazing plan you put together for all eternity, you're the only one that's going to get credit for it. You're the only one that's going to get the glory. You put together the perfect plan. Handed it off to me as the son to execute the plan. All authority has now been given to me to put it in place. I'm going to die on the cross for people's sins. But God, you put together a plan, and I thank you for it. I greatly rejoice because you're going to get all the credit and all the glory. Let me ask you, do you love God to the place where you're like, God, if I don't get any glory in this life or in all eternity, I've got no problems with it as long as you're the one getting all of it. I don't want some of these people in the world getting glory. They don't deserve it either. It's all you. It's, it's all you. And Jesus is like, this thrills my heart. This plan God put together, I just have to stop. I've got to tell these guys, don't place your joy in earthly success. Place it in the fact that your name's written in heaven. By the way, your name got written in heaven because God had this plan that he's absolutely sovereign in. And I rejoice in that plan. And then he finishes that talk in Matthew. He's like, yeah, anybody interested? Anybody interested in salvation? Anybody want to come? Those two great truths backed right up against each other, verse by verse. And I'm like, man, I've I got to believe in both, even if I can't. And Jesus is like, listen, I see him correctly, and all they create in me is joy. Just joy. So I'm going to borrow his joy when I can't figure it out and be like, you know what? I've got this little bit of tension, but I know his eyesight's 20-20 and mine's not, so I'm just going to grab onto his joy and say, I love your plan. I love your plan. Guys, 
Thanksgiving has become for our world, or at least our country, about food and family and football games and travel. Not us. Not us as Christians. I mean, I do hope you enjoy your family. I hope you have a great meal. But I also hope you go and close the door and get all alone. And with exceeding joy, like Jesus prayed here, you just start clicking through all the blessings in your life. Like that four-year-old we started with this morning. There's nothing wrong with naming every good thing he's given you. James 1, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father. Go ahead and thank him for all of them. But then step back on, on some big picture issues where we start thanking God for who he is, not just what he's given us. We thank him for who he is. And we say, God, I thank you that you're the kind of God that uses ordinary people. I thank you that you're the kind of God that's always honest and you never lie, even when it's about wolves. God, I, I thank you that you wrote my name in heaven before the foundations of the world. And God, I thank you that this whole plan is going to bring you glory, none of us. I'm telling you what, Thanksgiving like that could be very different. It should be different for us than the world. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, I would end it the way Christ did. Anybody interested? Anybody at all interested in taking his yoke? He's going to be honest with you. He's going to be telling you. Some days aren't going to be great. It's going to be wolfy. It's going to be people who revile, persecute. But the joy's worth it. The peace is worth it. The love is worth it. The grace is worth it. The forgiveness is worth it. The family you get to be a part of is worth it. If you're here this morning and you're like, I would like to celebrate Thanksgiving for the first time as a follower of Christ. When we get up here in a minute to sing our closing songs, would you grab Skylar or grab me or grab somebody else you know at Trinity that you know is a believer and say, I need to talk to somebody about what it means to follow Christ. But if you are a Christian, would you make your Thanksgiving look something like Luke chapter 10? Let me pray. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for this picture of Christ, um, the joy bubbling up to the surface in his life. I thank you for the mild correction he gave the 72, forgive us when we want to base our joy on things we do, places we go, success we have. May our joy ultimately be on things you do, God. You wrote our name. You're honest. You use ordinary people. You get all the glory. May our joy not come from things we do, but may our joy and thanksgiving come from things you do. In Christ's name.